south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 212, covering the week of April 6th through April 10th, 2020. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. While you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Traditions. So again, I've said this on a couple of podcasts. If you've already given us an email address, give us another one. Get the new ebook. It's free of charge. You're going to want it. It's a great book by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars, and it will change your mind about the Southern tradition. Also want to announce, of course, again, that we have canceled our summer school this year out of an abundance of caution. It's the term that's often used, but we're not certain what the current situation will be with uh, quarantine and other issues. So we decided to cancel the summer school and we will hold it again in 2021. So uh, that has been removed from the website. So don't look for the summer school any longer. Uh, and all of our conferences this year have been put on hold as well. So uh, we are um, in, a, in a holding pattern, as just about everyone else is in the United States. You can support the Institute by going to abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E institute.org. You can give us a, a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. Just click on that support tab and donor options. We have a new donor option interface. It's really good. I think you'll like it, and um, it is a way to help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, this podcast, the website, future conferences, other programs, other things that we're trying to do. All of it helps. So if you like what we do, please consider a contribution. You can also download our mobile app free of charge. Just go to your app store in your mobile device. Look for Abbeville Institute. You get the app. Again, free of charge. You got the Institute on the go. All of our lectures, our podcasts, all of that stuff is there. And please share our material on social media. If you like what we do and you like our message, you want to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition with us, share it around. And I'll give you an example of how powerful this can be. Yesterday on social media, Robert E. Lee was trending on Twitter. And of course, Twitter is a cesspool of 75% idiots. So I, of course, posted the article I wrote for the Institute a couple of years back, three years ago now, on Robert E. Lee versus Twitter historians. And the comments were pure gold from all the very intelligent people on social media. But these kind of things help because it helps draw attention to what we do. So if there's something going on on social media, share our articles that cover those things on your social media account, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Whatever you use, Instagram. We don't we don't have an Instagram page, but if you do, then share something that we do, and it will draw people to the institute, and uh, that's important. Look, I mean our our public reach is uh, something that um, is the is the only way really to help combat the stupidity that pervades America when it comes to the South and the Southern tradition. So. Let's talk about the material for the week. This is a this is an interesting week uh, for the simple fact that two of the pieces for this week were kind of what if pieces, historical inference pieces. 
And then two of the pieces had to do, actually three of the pieces, I should say, had to do with Southern culture. And so this is one thing that we often do at the Institute. You know, we, we do focus on Southern politics and the war in terms of uh, secession, the legality of secession. We do all of these things, right? We, we talk about the 20th century South. But one thing that we also do, and I think do very well, is try to bring out Southern culture. I mean, you can't have a unified people. You can't have a tradition without a culture. And Southern culture is one of the most beautiful cultures in the world. And so uh, it affects everything, and people don't even realize that, how important the South actually is for the fabric of American history itself and also for modern American society. Now, of course, it's often disparaged, put down, poked at, made fun of. Even the when I talked about you know the, the piece that I wrote on Lee, some moron responded that I haven't had the intelligence to get out of Alabama. Well, why would I want to go where you live? I mean, this is, this is the... <laughs> The treasury of virtue that these people have, they think that we want to live where they live. No, because they would be there, right? So why would I want to live where you live? Uh, it's just the stupidity of these people you just can't make up. Uh, but regardless, uh, Southern culture is a vibrant part of American society, particularly when you get to things like music, which is what we focused on the last piece of the week, but Literature. Uh, there wouldn't be an American literature without the South. Now, of course, if you go and take an American lit course at your college or university, you're going to get some Southern literature. I mean, it's going to be there. Generally, you're going to get Faulkner, maybe a, a Rose for Emily. Everyone has to read that short story at one point or another in their college career. Uh, you may not get any other Faulkner, though. You might get a little Flannery O'Connor. Uh, even in the South, you don't get as much Southern literature as you should. And that's unfortunate, but we, I mean, we do have some. So, uh, but Southern literature, and you're going to get Poe, you are going to get a heavy dose of Poe probably, but he's not often categorized as a Southern literary figure. He's just an American literary figure. Why? It's like George Washington, as Clyde Wilson says, he's an honorary Yankee, right? So you got, you've got people like George Washington who was a Southern. He had to be a Southern. That's the only way to describe him. He had to be a Southerner. Virginia was in his blood and bones. He couldn't have been anything else but a Southerner. But and, and the radical left realizes this, which is why they want to tear everything about George Washington down. Now, of course, everyone else, he's just a good American, right? He's just this bland American. No, he's a Virginian. Uh, the same thing with Edgar Allan Poe, right? I mean, Poe hated New England. He really did. He hated New England literature. He thought it was awful stuff. thought it was boring. Uh, but he's just an honorary American. He's just a byproduct of America. Now, unless he's you bring up the strange things about Poe, well, then he's Southern. <laughs> this is the way it always works. They're, the strange stuff is Southern, but the normal stuff, the quote-unquote normal stuff, is just American. Uh, that's, that's the way the South is often described. So, uh, we... we uh, we looked at some cultural things, and then, of course, this historical inference. So let's start with the inference. Uh, there is this book published back, I can't remember the exact year, but it's by a man named Turtle Dove, and it's entitled The Guns of the South. And th the story is that um, somehow in the future, Amer uh, people have figured out time travel. 
and South Africans have decided to travel back in time to go to the South and bring them AK-47s so that the South can win the war. And then, of course, Turtle Dove has a whole series on this. The South actually wins the war with these new weapons, these AK-47s. And then you have a battle over what the future of the South is going to be. Is it going to be uh, a, a, an ardent pro-slavery segregationist society, or is it going to be something a little different? Um, all that's just kind of, you know, that's reading into Southern politics. But regardless, uh, the story is that if the South had better firepower, they would have won the war. And so on Wednesday, we produced a piece by Jack Marcourt, one of our resident scholars in Japan, who, by the way, is having a book come out with Shotwell Press. It's his autobiography. It's really good. I've seen it. I've seen the, uh, the interior of it. Uh, I-, I love these kind of stories because, I mean, Jack is a really interesting man. And uh, he's lived in Japan most of his life, most of his adult life. Um, but he has such an interesting story to tell about so many other things, spending time, of course, back in the United States. And, um, but it's, uh, he is uh, just an amazing individual. And uh, so I think when it comes out with Shot One, I don't know the publication date, you're going to want to buy this. And one of the things that always attracts me to it is, you know, Jack was born in a different time. Um, he is in his 80s now. And uh, he served in World War II. And uh, when I read his, when I read his, his autobiography, it, made me think of my own grandparents and the stories that they had. You know, my, my own grandfather, uh, who in 1930 was told to uh, either live on the ranch, you could live on the ranch and work for his dad, or he could just leave. And he gave him 50 bucks, and he said, you're gone. And uh, he did. He, he went to California and uh, got on a freighter that was hauling marble to Alaska, and then uh, got to Alaska, one-way ticket. He was there, rode the train to the interior, covered in snow. He was found by a teacher who had married an Eskimo woman and brought him in. He worked in a gold mine up there in Alaska for a while. I mean, these are these are amazing stories because here we are. Of course, that's 1930. We're at a point where, you know, we're at the, the Depression in the United States. We're approaching another Depression in the United States. Or Americans, I mean, he had 50 bucks, right? This is all he had, and he had enough money to get a one-way ticket to Alaska. He's looking for work. Now people are wondering how they're going to get paid by the government for sitting around doing nothing. I mean, this is this is the difference in the two generations. That generation, all right, well, you got to go to work. You got to find something. That means you have to leave your home. You got to go somewhere to find a job. And now Americans just whine about having to do that. They don't want to leave anywhere. Well, they got all their stuff and all their things and all this. So they don't want to leave. But uh, amazing stories for the, from this generation. So back to Jack. He, he wrote this piece, you know, what if the South had better firepower? Would the war have been different? And he brings up the fact that some Southerners were producing high-quality firearms, but that were, they were not adopted. The technology was not adopted by the Confederate States government. And this is interesting because this, this Confederacy actually was fairly innovative when it came to the military. Uh, when you look at the Navy, for example, they were pioneering in things that, of course, would later become standard uh, in, um, in in modern navies. I mean, of course, the Union did it as well with the turret system on their ironclads. But uh, the South understood they had a gap in the number of ships. But what they could do is produce better technology. And so they were trying to do that. I mean, look, the first 
workable uh, submarine. There was a submarine in 1775. David Bushnell invented one. But uh, when you have a a submarine, the Hunley, that can sink an enemy ship, I mean, this was amazing stuff. Uh, Just unfortunately, it sank to the bottom of Charleston Harbor as well for, for the Confederacy, unfortunately, it did. And, but, I mean, this is amazing technology. And, of course, the ironclad ships that they build and um, the, the technology advancements and cannons. I mean, this was, this was important for the South. So they did have some better technology, breech-loading rifles. They had invented some of these things. They just didn't get in the hands of Southerners, as enough Southerners. And Marquardt brings up that, well, if they had been able to do this, if Southerners had had these better rifles in a defensive position, which is what they were in, they could have won the war because they would have inflicted such terrible numbers, terrible casualties on Union soldiers advancing. I mean, the the casualty numbers alone probably would have forced a negotiation between the North and South at one point. So there were some missed opportunities for the Confederacy, and one of them happened to be, what if they had adopted some of these better designs for firearms. The South did produce a number of firearms. I mean, uh, and, and they had firearm factories and sword factories and other things. Of course, there was a, they were relying on, on also imported firearms from Europe, which were the best muzzle-loading weapons you could get at the time. I mean, the, but if they had had their own domestic firearm industry that was producing better technology, Marquardt says that this probably could have led to a different outcome for the war. And I, I tend to agree with him. Uh, look, I mean, if if the South had been able to, ex- to have superior firepower from the beginning of the conflict, the war probably would have gone differently. And so uh, this what if, you know, what if the South had done this? I mean, it's, it's just fun to, to talk about these things. What if this would have been different or that would have been different? We know the outcome was what it was. But this is one of the games that historians can often play. Historical inference is a fun thing to do. And in that case, Phil Lee reviews a book by Tom, the late Tom Fleming, not the Tom Fleming from Chronicles, who's still thankfully with us, but Thomas Fleming, the historian who died a couple of years back. He was in his 90s and wrote his last book, uh, The Disease of the Public Mind, was just ripped apart by the social justice left because he was extremely critical of abolitionists who he said were causing a lot of the problems, political problems. He was essentially blaming it on the radical left. The war was the result of the radical left because they instigated a conflict that really wasn't there. And it caused all kinds of rhetorical and cultural problems. But in this particular book, it's a novel. It's a historical inference novel. And in fact, Lee brings up the fact that Fleming probably used this as a springboard to his nonfiction work, A Disease of the Public Mind. But uh, this is a the secret trial of Robert E. Lee. What if Lee had actually had a trial? What if there was a trial of Lee that did not go as intended and Lee was found not guilty of treason? And this brings up, of course, the fact that we had Lee surrendering at Appomattox on April 9th, and that was the instigation for the Robert E. Lee trending on Twitter scenario where people were voicing their idiotic opinions of Robert E. Lee based on nothing, on an article written by 
a moron at the Atlantic. Uh, so, uh, what if Lee had actually been put on trial and found not guilty of treason or uh, any other crime against humanity in the 19th century? And uh, it's a it's a fascinating argument that uh, that Fleming makes. That of course he was the the argument at the time was that well you know look if we do this I mean Northerners were not willing to accept former slaves as equals in their society. They weren't they didn't even want them in their states. They wanted to bottle up slaves in the South. And of course one of the ways to do that was to give them political power where they could then vote Republican. You keep them there, but you also gain a substantial voting block. And you make it to where you win every national election. And so, I mean, this was certainly uh, the goal of the Republican Party, not political and social equality in their own state, but of course, political and social equality in the South, where they could determine the future course of Southern elections. And then, of course, national, quote unquote, national elections as well. And uh, I think that this is, you know, Hiram Rose Revels, who was the first African-American to serve in the United States Senate, he's from North Carolina, but was elected from Mississippi, pointed this out when he wrote a letter saying, look, we've been used as pawns. I mean, there are no real Republicans right now. We're used as pawns in a bigger game for electoral power so that rich Northeastern and Mid-Atlantic bankers can get rich, fatter. They can get fatter than they are right now. You see, the end result of the war was the complete destruction of an opposition to Hamilton's America. This is clear. I mean, the the whole point of it was that. Now, certainly, this is where the populists figured this out in the late 19th century, in both the North and the Midwest and the South. And they said, you know, wait a second here. We've been duped. These these Midwestern farmers were duped by New England merchants and and New York merchants and siding with them because, of course, the issue there was the extension of slavery, and it was playing on race and other things in the West. This is where Eric Foner wrote his best book, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, where he points out, you know, these Western Republicans were uh, not really, they were anti-slavery, but they were also extreme racists, and they were anti-slavery because they didn't want the competition, they didn't want blacks in their states. This is Leon Litvak, you know, north of slavery. It's the entire thesis. It's to look at the West in a different way. But these Western farmers then, I mean, they cut the deal because they didn't want competition for their land and, of course, their labor. And now that they've been saddled with this Hamiltonian economic system, it's not going very well for them. So they want out. This is the populist revolt. And so this is uh, this is powerful stuff. Uh, what if... You know, what if there was something going on behind the scenes that people don't understand or realize, or this deal that had been cut and these things that had happened, these blacks uses political pawns and other things? I mean, this is the complexity of the entire period. We get in these situations where it's good versus bad. Uh, there's no complexity at all. Uh, but of course, that was not the case at all with the war. So, Great piece by Phil Lee, again, reviewing this book by Tom Fleming, the late Tom Fleming. And then we had had three pieces on Southern culture. So I want to start with the Monday piece by Neil Kumar, The South Lives Yet. And this is a little personal experience. He was driving, he he had had some car troubles and 
went to a little mechanic shop there, and he struck, uh, you know, struck up a conversation with the people that ran the shop. It turns out they had this fascinating family history with the war, and uh, some of the things they talked about there, and the the abuse of their family by Union soldiers during the war uh, was just tremendous. I mean, these are the things, these are the lost stories. It's, and when you read this, I mean, this is where Faulkner says, you know, the, the past isn't dead. It's, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it's not even the past, right? I mean, it's real for these people. This is, this is something that happened to their family. And so what Southerners are being told they have to do is either disown the people that this happened to uh, or uh, completely denounce them or forget that it happened. I mean, you, you, that's evil. That's the very definition of evil. When you say to someone, well, you know, your family are just a bunch of trash. And uh, because of that, you have to denounce them. This is where the uh, the Reverend Robert E. Lee, the uh, now it's what he classified, the Reverend Robert E. Lee, who's a descendant of Robert E. Lee, runs around saying, I hate Robert E. Lee. I hate, I don't like him. He's terrible, terrible guy. I mean, this is just stupid, right? But, I mean, that's that's where we are. Uh, so uh, he's a young guy. I don't know how old the Reverend Rarity Lee is, but um, he's become a celebrity on the left because he denounces his namesake on a regular basis, and he is directly descended from, from Robert E. Lee. So, uh, you know, th- this is just the very definition of evil to make these... But, Neil Kumar says, I mean, this is this is the real South. I mean, these people are real. They have real stories. And uh, the South still lives. And I, I think that that's always been the case. I mean, look, the South has never died. Southern culture, Southern tradition has never died. It's never gone away. It's always been there. It's just that it's always under attack. This is why the Institute exists. It's under attack because it represents a counterweight to modern America and all the problems of modern America and people don't even realize it that it does that because it's just a bunch of hayseeds hillbillies why are you living in Alabama kind of thing and that's why we have the cultural pieces that we do and so I'll finish up with Clyde Wilson's because I think it's just so good but on Friday we published a piece on we're, we're doing a series now on Southern Rock for the Apocalypse, and we're just going to put out songs no, in no order. Three, myself and two other Abbeville Institute scholars, Jeff Rogers and Tom Daniel, have put together a list of well over 100 songs. This is going to be a multi-article uh, multi, uh, you know, series. I think I did, we did 20 in the first. Uh, but it's an eclectic collection of southern rock songs everything from soft rock to hard rock to traditional what you would can say southern rock to country rock um and we had some really fun stuff in this you know and again we have uh, what's considered the first southern rock song in, in the cover of hey jude by wilson pickett with Dwayne allman on guitar and wilson pickett is often you know characterized as being from detroit but he was actually born in prattville alabama i mean it's and so we recorded this Hey Jude cover at the Fame Studios in uh, in Muscle Shoals. Uh, so I mean, it's we have that all the way through. You know, Christopher Cross, who was the who is the image. I think the only one that might be better is Air Supply. But Christopher Cross really is the soft rock image of the 1980s. 
uh, but he's from Texas, right? So uh, that and, of course, traditional Southern rock like Skinnerd and uh, uh, Marshall Tucker and the Allman Brothers and uh, Molly Hatchet, which is kind of the harder side of Southern rock. And then all the way into modern bands with this this first piece, we had a the band Clutch from uh, Maryland. They still put the, the Maryland state flag on stage. They're very proud from being from Maryland. And I think that's amazing. And the Maryland state flag is such a beautiful flag. Uh, but they're proud of being from Maryland. They're considered to be kind of a, you know, Southern rock band, a you know, hard Southern rock band, or the band Jackal from Georgia slash South Carolina. Jesse James Dupree, uh, who uh, was uh, more uh, famous recently for a reality television show where he bought into a biker bar up in North Dakota that since burned down the the Full Throttle Saloon. Uh, but he plays the chainsaw, which is always fun. Um, and uh, the, the Bellamy Brothers, who are now, you know, kind of a, a beach bum uh, band. Uh, but, you know, back in the 70s, they had a 70s and early 80s, they had several big hits on the country charts. Uh, they're, they're kind of fun. And, uh, you know, Billy, uh, it was Billy Shaver, uh, who was uh, arrested for shooting a man in the face just a few years ago. Uh, outlaw country musician, but, you know, doing this kind of southern rock tune. Uh, so a lot of good stuff, Elvin Bishop and um, Grinder Switch. We're going to get into all kinds of different bands. And in each case, we'll tell a little story about it. But you know, the Black Crows and Cry of Love, which were kind of these neo-hippie bands uh, driving and crying, uh, kind of a neo-hippie 1990s band, but certainly Southern. I mean, the Black Crows are certainly a Southern rock band, uh, without question. And their first two albums are just fantastic in that, in that regard. Um, and we'll have a lot of Black Crows, a lot of Skinner, a lot of Almond Brothers, and Marshall Tucker, and Charlie Daniels. Uh, and the song we put of Charlie Daniels' Whiskey is from the early Charlie Daniels band. And I mean, it is just really good. You want to talk about a tight Southern rock jam band, the early Charlie Daniels is just so good. Uh, and that song, Whiskey, is just fantastic. The bass riff is just tremendous. And the way they're able to stay together, it's just so good. Um, so a lot of great stuff in this early look at Southern Rock for the Apocalypse. If you're stuck at home and you want to listen to some music, well, we're going to give you a playlist to do it. Uh, and it's going to be really eclectic. Uh, so you might not like all of it. Maybe some of it's too hard. Maybe some of it's too soft. Maybe, you know, it's. but you'll find something that's just right. And I think that's the way every culture is. And I often bring this up with my students. So they say, I don't like art. Well, everyone likes art. You just don't know what you like in art yet. Just like everyone likes music, you just have to find what you like. Um, and I think that's the, that's the key to understanding literature, art, music. And so the literature component of Southern culture is just amazing as well. And we're going to run a multi, again, multi-part series for, for Clyde Wilson. This is going to be well over 20 parts. So it's going to go on for a while. And it may not run every week, but you know, you're going to have a piece here and there. Um, Southern poets and poems and uh, in this particular case uh, this particular week the first um, focuses on a southern poet named Michael Drayton now Michael Drayton uh, is from England never set foot in the new world but he wrote a poem in 1606 dedicated to Sir Walter Raleigh's first expedition. And the important part about this, and I think this is this is the key to understanding this early, this 
Some people would say this poem, disparagingly would say this poem was written as propaganda because the Virginia Company wanted to ensure that people would travel to the New World and they had to show it as being better than it was. Of course, Sir Walter Raleigh's expedition, unfortunately, didn't work out. Uh, you know, the, the Roanoke Colony failed, but they had, the Virginia Company was trying to uh, market this new expedition in 1606, and so they paid Michael Drayton to do it. But I think the thing that's important about this, when you look at these early poems and that were coming out of the South, because there was no Plymouth until 1620, were coming out of the South, it's about the, the uh, possibilities of this land. The possibilities. And and I think that's the beautiful part about it. Uh, When you look at how Southerners described the land and environment in the 17th century, it was a bountiful, almost utopia. I mean, certainly everyone knew that there were bad things about it. And when you look at Jamestown and how often, I mean, the awful things that had to go on there, cannibalism and other things, I mean, it's awful. But the possibilities were enough to send people west in a quest to have something else. And I think that's the beautiful part about this early Southern literature. The part that's, that Michael Drayton capitalizes on and explains very well. And of course, the first stanza, You brave heroic minds, worthy your country's name, that honor still pursue, go and subdue. Whilst loitering hinds lurk here at home with shame. I mean, you look at this. Heroic people worthy of being an Englishman are going to go and subdue the new world while loitering hinds lurk here with Lurk here at home with shame. This is, uh, when you look at uh, Shakespeare, I mean, this is this is the same type of uh, sentiment in St. Crispin's Day speech. You know, these, these band of brothers are going to go fight the French, and those that are stuck there in bed are going to die, or they're just going to rue the day that they weren't here fighting with us. I mean, this is the same type of thing. Britons, you stay too long, quickly aboard you board bestow you, and with a merry gale swell your stretched sail with vows as strong as the winds that blow you. None of these things, none of these perils are going to keep you at home. If you're a good Englishman, if you're a good Briton, you're going to go west, and you're going to conquer and subdue, you're going to subdue this new world. The appeal was strong in this for the adventurous, the strong-minded, and ultimately, many people took them up on it. That's, that's the beautiful part of this. And I think that um, what we need to understand from this early literature, and of course, he, he has a, you know, a beautiful line, and cheerfully at sea, success you still entice to get the pearl and gold and ours to hold Virginia, Earth's only paradise. Earth's only paradise. 
And why was it a paradise? Because it was full of fowl and venison and fish and fertile soil. And you can get more than you wish, he says. I mean, this is the, the trees, the cypress, the pine, the sassafras, the, the vine, all of this stuff. Still nature's laws doth give no other cares that tend but them to defend from winter's age that long there doth not live. He calls it a delicious land. I mean, this is really good. Uh, so, it's an early example of Southern literature because it's about the South. And, and I think that's where, where uh, Clyde Wilson is driving home with this. And uh, when you look at the intellectual history of the South, the tradition of the South, I mean, this is just so good. So, it's important to read a little poetry. It always has been. Always read a little poetry every day, and it'll get your day going well. And uh, if you haven't read this or you haven't looked at this piece yet, I highly recommend it. All right, so hope you enjoyed this Week in Review at the Abbey Institute. Until next time, good day. <laughs>